0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies.
1: How many of you think that you have a firm grasp and understanding of what substantial equivalence means as it relates to regulatory submissions, especially to a 510K. Well, got news for you. There is a large percentage of 510Ks that are rejected because of poor substantial equivalence. So clearly, there's something that we in the industry can learn about this particular topic. And that's why Mike Drews and I chat. About substantial equivalence on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru, John Spear. And with me today, I have my good friend Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. Hello, Mike. Hi, John. Well, today I thought we would talk about something that. I know you are uh, very involved with, and it's it's something that I'm sure you deal with probably on a daily basis. And it's that that fun topic of demonstrating substantial equivalence, and really, what does all that even mean? I know that's something that confuses people quite a bit.
0: Well, you're exactly right, John. And as we'll discuss today, um, the concept of substantial equivalence has been around now for. 41 years since 1976 when the uh, when the 510K was created, and still 41 years later, I still don't think we're very much closer to answering the question, what exactly does substantial equivalence mean?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, maybe that's probably a, a, a good place to start. I mean, I know that's a term that's thrown around, at, you know, people... Uh, when they're trying to understand, well, what does what substantial equivalence mean? Why does that apply to me? Why is that important? So maybe if you can take a moment or two and, and let everyone know a little bit of why substantial equivalence, why we should care about this topic. So that's a gr- that is a great place to start, John. Um, so substantial equivalence
0: is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, <laughs> to remind you and your audience of some uh, some statistics, 75% of 510-Ks that are submitted to the FDA today are rejected first time out of the box. And of those that are rejected, 85% of them are rejected specifically because of substantial equivalence or the lack thereof. Yes, I know that a lot of 510-Ks are rejected on administrative review because of uh, the refuse to accept guidance, for example. But we're not talking about administrative review. We're talking about the substantive or the scientific review. So 85% of 510Ks that are rejected on scientific review are rejected because of substantial equivalence. That's uh, reason number one why substantial equivalence is important. Reason number two that substantial equivalence is important is because it's one of the two key parts, the two key components of to 510K. In order to have a successful 510K, you need to have a very strong substantial equivalence argument and you have to have a rock-solid risk mitigation strategy. So substantial equivalence is one half
1: of that uh, 510K equation. All right. Well, that that certainly starts to shed a little bit of light on, on this, why I, as med device, not a developer, need to worry about substantial equivalence. But Okay, it's it's clear that that, uh, it's a big deal when it comes to 510Ks, and it's clear that that, uh, we as an industry probably aren't faring so well uh, on the uh, substantial equivalence front. So maybe take a moment or two and let's talk a little bit about what is substantial equivalence, and maybe we can get into a little bit of of how I would demonstrate that and, you know, all those sorts of things. So let's start. What is it? What does that even mean?
0: I'm happy to do that, John. And again, just leading into that, uh, just, just, uh, reflecting back to those statistics for a moment. So many people do think that substantial equivalence is such a no-brainer, uh, pardon the pun. Um, but if it is, then how do we explain those statistics that I just shared? So substantial equivalence is not nearly as simple as a lot of people think. So, fundamentally, the, when we talk about the substantial equivalence, the challenge that, that we're talking about here, the question that we're asking is uh how different can two medical devices be, both in terms of labeling as well as technology? and yet still be similar enough, close enough, to be substantial equivalent. Now, of course, FDA has put out a number of guidances over the last 41 years to try to address that question, to try to add clarity to that question. But as I said earlier, and I really mean this, um, there is no answer, certainly no simple answer to that question. It's up to us. We have to go into the FDA, and we have to argue that our device is uh, um, basically the same or substantially equivalent, addressing, as we we'll talk about the two components of substantial equivalence, labeling and technology. And in my approach, substantial equivalence, when I address that, I address labeling separately and technology separately. Most people do not do that, but that's another reason why most submissions are rejected. So, for example, on the labeling side, I will create a labeling matrix, as I like to call it, where I show the labeling for our device and I show the labeling. I'm talking about high-level labeling here, indications sure. or use and intended use for our predicate device or uh our predicate devices if there's more than one. And I will literally do a word-to-word comparison. And I actually take it a step further. I like to highlight these in different colors. So, for example, the words that are the same in my device versus the predicate, I will highlight those in green. The words that are similar but are not exactly the same, I will highlight those in yellow. And finally, the words that are very different, I will highlight those in red. So, simply put, what I'm doing graphically is I'm stressing the similarities in other words, the more green that I have in that labeling table, the more likely I will be successful with a 510K. Alternatively, the more red that I have in that table, the more likely I might want to consider the, the novo, for example. Um, sure. so, so for the words that are the same in green, um, I say, you know, these are the same words, end of discussion, Uh, Let's move on to the next point. For the words that are in yellow, I say these are very similar, but the differences don't matter, and here's why. And finally, for those words that are in red, that's where we have to do a little heavy lifting that's where we have to show that, yes, these are significant differences, but still the device is substantially equivalent anyway, for example, because it does not um uh introduce any new uh questions about safety or risk or anything like that and then I do exactly the same on the technology side i will do I will create what I call a technology matrix where I compare. The, the technology of my device to the technology of the predicate, and I would do the same thing with the with the highlighting in different colors, emphasizing the similarities and uh and and explaining the differences. does All
1: that right, make sense john I, I think so. So let me ask maybe uh, a clarifying question or maybe a um, a point to make sure that it's clear so in this matrix that you're constructing. Uh, the items that you highlight yellow, I mean, there's, that identifies the similar items. And so then you provide some narrative to explain uh, the, the similarities. And the same would be true for the things that you you highlight in red where they're different. You, again, provide some narrative to give some explanation of why it, it does not matter. Is, is, do I have the concept Yes, that's correct. Uh, in many cases, I would
0: say actually in virtually all cases, I do provide narrative. And depending on exactly what the, uh, what the situation is, especially on the technology side, I might not just provide a, a narrative, a, a written explanation, but I also might include data. I might include sure. testing as to, uh, you know, here's um, the technological parameter of my device in, you know, this particular range uh, and the predicate is the same range or something like that. I see a lot of submissions as, as many in your audience may remember, John. I also work as a consultant for the FDA so I see this from both sides. I see a lot of submissions come in where there is only data, only numbers with no... Explanation with no narrative whatsoever, and that is, in my opinion, not a very good approach. What I try to do with all of my submissions and even my pre subs and all of my documentation, to be honest, is I try to tell a story. I try to write this kind of like a novel, where there's an introduction, there's a series of main points, there's a conclusion. I want
1: to make a, a readable document. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and, and that's really what we're doing with any sort of regulatory submission is is we're not just throwing data over the wall, we're, we're telling a story. And we should, you know, I guess establish the plot in the way that, that uh, we want the reader to interpret and understand things, uh, hopefully in our favor, and so the story is, is certainly important. Um,
0: That's a great metaphor, John, and, you know, I use a similar metaphor from politics frequently, and that is the spin. You know, yeah. is the is the glass half empty or half full? That those both are factually correct statements. The data is the data, but we can present that data in obviously
1: many different ways. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that story of our substantial equivalence. And you already shared some some of the statistics from uh, how often, unfortunately, uh, we as an industry get substantial equivalence wrong in the eyes of the FDA. But but what happens if you get it wrong?
0: Well, first of all, we have to be a little bit careful. Sometimes we do, in fact, get it wrong, but more often than not, it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's more we haven't convinced the FDA to buy into oh, our yeah. argument, to buy into our position. So it's not, it's not the, once again, is the glass half empty or half full? Um, it's not a matter of right or wrong, true or false, black or white. It's a matter of convincing. When I go to the FDA uh with a five ten K or any other kind of submission for that matter, I view this very much like a a a, a sales and marketing uh, uh objective. In other words, I'm trying to sell the FDA, not in a monetary sense, but I'm trying to sell the FDA on my regulatory logic, in this particular case on my substantial equivalence rationale. Sure. So so What happens when companies do... Uh, do get it wrong or at the very least are not successful in selling the FDA with their substantial equivalents. Well, simply put, usually nothing good happens. Usually you're talking about more time, more money. Sometimes you're even pushed into a more rigorous regulatory pathway like, for example, uh, a PMA. And I'll give you a quick example. Uh, There was an in vitro diagnostic company that made a submission to the FDA not long ago, uh they they were unsuccessful with their 510k specifically in showing substantial equivalence but it took the fda 10 months to come back and tell the company uh, that this device is not substan- not substantially equivalent nse so just imagine the amount of not just time but money that was wasted uh, in this whole back and forth process, and, and you and I have talked about before, John, I think this is a very amateur mistake. I don't think there's any situation where a 510K should be rejected because of substantial equivalence. I think sure. we can greatly mitigate the chances of that happening, uh, possibly even eliminate the chances of that happening, taking the, the, the technology to the FDA long in advance of the submission in the form of a pre-submission meeting or something else. So um, uh, again, I see a lot of companies doing this, but I think it's a very amateur mistake. Sure.
1: All right. So let's get into maybe a little bit more of the the meat of this. And you know, I'm I'm a med device company. I'm preparing a submission, and I need to demonstrate. You know, I'm, I'm putting together a five ten k, and I, I I need to demonstrate substantial equivalence. So. How do we show that? How do we demonstrate substantial equivalence? So
0: my approach, which is admittedly different than the approach that many other take, but I don't want to be in that 75% that are rejected. I want to be in the 25% that are not, and fortunately I am. Uh, the way I achieve that, as I, as I alluded to earlier, is I decouple the two components of substantial equivalence, that is labeling and technology, and I address them separately by creating the labeling matrix and creating the technology matrix. But I don't stop there. I go well beyond what the regulation requires. I also look at the product code. So, for example, if my product code uh, – sorry, if my predicate's product code is XYZ, um, my product code is probably going to be the same XYZ, although not always, but more often than not it is. I will also provide a rationale, a justification as to why my technology is appropriate for that particular product code and not for another product code. And by the way, let me go back to predicates for just a moment. I will usually not just talk about the predicate that I'm using, but I will also talk about other possible devices that might be considered predicates and why I am not using those. In other words, I want to do all that I can to remove all the possible reasons why FDA might come back uh, and say, this is not substantially equivalent. I want to be very proactive. I want to be very Prophylactic in, in what my, uh, you know, what, what I'm doing. I want to demonstrate at the end of the day that I know what the heck I'm doing. I've considered the labeling. I've considered the technology. I've considered the product code. I will also put an argument in there as to the classification justification. If your predicate is class two, for example, and you're, you're successful with your substantial equivalence argument, then your new device will also be class two. But I don't make that assumption. I will mm-hmm. also put a justification, usually not that long, but at least a few paragraphs as to why class 2 is the appropriate classification for my device. Uh, Again, I want to remove all the possible reasons why FDA could come back and say this device is not substantially equivalent. So bottom line, when it comes to substantial equivalence, John, for me, it's fairly simple. I want to stress the similarities, and at the same time, I want to de-emphasize, or at the very least, not draw attention to the differences. And any differences that do um, uh, that, that are present, I need to be able to mitigate them, or maybe even completely dismiss them, uh, so that they're not relevant to our to our discussion. So maybe we should take a look at some uh, examples, John.
1: Well, <clears throat> I do want to talk about some examples, but there's a couple of things that uh one i want to clarify to the audience cuz i i've heard some confusion uh from time to time uh on the the topic of product code so let's talk uh, let me share a little bit about product code so uh fda has identified i don't even know the count but hundreds thousands of different product codes and these product codes are three letter codes that relate to uh the the type of device that you have and the um the product codes then all fit under different regulations that also relate to the specific type of device or, or category of, of product that you're developing. And like, for example, one regulation may have, it could conceivably have dozens of different product codes uh, that, that relate to that. And every device that gets cleared through uh, a 510K is assigned a primary product code you as the submitter usually uh, will define that initially. Sometimes that changes from from an FDA perspective and sometimes um, not quite as common, but sometimes there might be secondary product codes that might be assigned. So whenever you're, you're looking at predicate devices, uh, you will be able to see on their 510k summary uh, what product code that, uh, was designated to that. So that's an important thing to identify. That's what Mike was mentioning. And then Mike, I want to highlight something that you talked about. You talked about identifying the predicates that you're using, but you also talked about uh, other devices that might have similar product codes uh, or regulations that, uh, in that same kind of category as the product that you're demonstrating or that you're submitting that you chose not to use as predicates with an explanation. I I wanted to, to maybe dive into that just a little bit because – that's a little bit of a novel approach. Can you talk maybe a little bit more about that, add a few more words about that? Sure, I'd be happy to, John. Um, the regulation says in order to have
0: a 510K, we have to have a predicate. The regulation does not say how close or alternatively how distant, that how different that predicate can be. The regulation also does not say how recent or how old that predicate can be. And in my opinion, the regulation should not say anything about how close it is in terms of technology or how recent it is in terms of time. That should be totally up to us. So everything else being equal... I will choose a predicate that is as similar as possible to to my technology. I will choose a predicate that is as recent as possible uh, in terms of time. But there are many cases where I don't do that. For example, if it's to my advantage to choose a predicate that is more distant in terms of Technology, or is older. Let's say, for the sake of discussion, that I have a couple of different predicates that I can use. One that was brought to the market a year ago, and the other that was brought to the market a decade, a decade ago. And let's say, for whatever reason, the product that was brought onto the market was, that a, a decade ago was more is more appropriate to make my substantial equivalence comparison than the one from last year. So I will say to the FDA, and by the way, I do this in my pre first, and then I do it also in my submission. I say to the FDA, I'm going to compare my device to this device that was brought onto the market a decade ago. And before I explain why, you probably remember that there was another device, a similar device that was brought onto the market last year. Let me first explain to you why I am not using that device. So, once again, John, I'm trying to remove as many possible reasons why FDA can disagree with me as I possibly can in advance, you know, before they even so. So, simply put, the regulation says there has to be a predicate. It doesn't say how similar it needs to be. Nor does it say how recent or how old that it needs to be. Some people, by the way, have suggested that we add regulation along those lines. I'm adamantly against that for a right. variety of reasons. But that should be up to us as as professionals. That's kind of like, you know, micromanaging a surgeon. A good surgeon will know how to do the procedure to get the best outcome for the patient. A good regulatory consultant will know how to get the best outcome. Uh, for that particular medical device, and I don't okay. want regulation to
1: get in my way too much of that. All right, I appreciate you going into a little bit more depth on that. So, yes, uh, you suggest that we talk about some examples. Let's talk about a few examples.
0: Sure. So I, you know, I'm a big fan of of Albert Einstein. Einstein was a f- very, very smart guy, much smarter than me. And Einstein said, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. So I try to use very simple metaphors that everybody can relate to. Rather than using uh, medical devices that probably require some knowledge of engineering or medicine, let's use some examples that everybody uh, can relate to. So starting out by comparing an apple to an orange. If we were going to walk into the FDA wanting to argue that an apple is substantially equivalent to an orange, uh, let me put you a little bit on the spot, John. How would you do that?
1: uh sure so I, I would uh talk a little bit about the nutritional value of of each of the apple and the orange and how they're uh similar and substantially equivalent. I would talk about how they're both uh fruits that grow on trees uh I would talk about um, you know the vitamins and the minerals and you know all the substances that might be contained within each of those that are the same. So you're
0: exactly right, John, and for the benefit of the audience, let me point out what John is doing. He's doing step one of my substantial equivalence logic, and that is stressing the similarities. So both the apple and the orange are fruits, they both grew on trees. They both have skins, they both have seeds, they both provide nutrients and calories uh and so on and so on. so step one is to strip is to uh stress the similarities. Would you stop at that point, John?
1: uh would I stop at that point I mean i you know so uh, not much labeling uh, for an apple and orange, but i, I suppose if we're going to buy uh apples in the store and and oranges in the store, they're going to be potentially in some sort of Container or bag, that may have some sort of label, and and I might identify you know some of the similarities on on their packaging that might be um, might be pertinent to the discussion. Um, I do no, know. I mean, should I should I dive deeper? I, I felt like that might be a leading question.
0: It was. I I was hoping that it was a leading question. You did brilliantly on step one, stressing the similarities. <laughs> what I was hoping to lead you to is step two, which is de-emphasizing or not drawing attention oh, to I the see, differences. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, let's, let's again use the apple and the orange as an example. So they're both <laughs> fruits, but they are different fruits. They both, um, have, have skins, but in the case of the apple, most people eat the skin. In the case of the orange, most people do not. They both provide nutrients, but maybe the nutrient content for an apple is a little bit different than an orange. So for each of those differences, We have to, first of all, acknowledge the difference, but then we have to mitigate it. We have to say, yes, there there is a difference in nutritional value, but both fall within the recommended daily uh, uh, allowances for vitamin C or what have you, and therefore it's not important. So step two of the um, substantial equivalence logic is uh, de-emphasizing or not drawing attention to the differences. And then any differences that are there, we have to mitigate them. Now, taking that even a step further, John, sometimes I will bring up a difference prophylactically that is uh, without FDA even asking me uh, about it. Uh, but other times, I might not bring up that difference prophylactically because maybe I don't want to address it unless I have to. And I will wait to see if FDA brings it up. If FDA doesn't ever bring it up, then I don't have to address it. If FDA does bring it up, then I will be prepared in advance to address that difference. So okay. this is all part of the uh, the, the, the the poker game as I've described this before, um, you know, knowing not just which cards to play, but when to play them and how. So again, stress step one is stressing the similarities. Step two is de emphasizing or not drawing attention to the differences. Let's use one more metaphor and how about okay. comparing a car to a truck? If yes, we sure. were wanting to bring a car to the market by comparing it to a truck, how would we do that, John? What
1: would be the regulatory logic? Well, there's all kinds of similarities be- between cars and, and trucks, Mike. I mean, we they they have four wheels, they have engines, they have steering wheels, they have seats on the interior, uh, they have uh, a frame and a chassis, and and you know, of course, we can go on and on and on and list all the specific details of a, a car and a truck that are that are the same. They they transport people. Uh, they they go a certain uh, velocity and contain, you know, fuel to make them go and all those sorts of things.
0: Well, once again, John, you've done a brilliant job on step one of stressing the similarities. Both are vehicles for transportation. Both travel on roads. Both have engines. Both consume fuel and on and on and on. Step two, of course, is to uh, de-emphasize or not drawing attention to the differences. So both are vehicles, but usually trucks are much larger than cars. Both have engines, but usually cars might burn gasoline or perhaps electricity. If it's a hybrid, trucks usually burn diesel. Uh, Both are are vehicles for transportation, but cars are usually designed to carry people and a small amount of cargo. Trucks, on the other hand, like an 18-wheeler, for example, are Designed to carry you know very large amounts of cargo, so just like in the apples and the oranges, we have to stress the similarities and de-emphasize and mitigate the risks of the differences. Now let's use that metaphor to go even one step further. It depends on what kind of truck. So if you right. had a choice between comparing your car to an 18-wheeler versus a car to a pickup truck, everything else being equal, John,
1: which would you which would you choose? Well, I'm going to choose the pickup truck because, uh, you know, it is going to be the most similar to, to my car as far as its form and function.
0: You're exactly right. A pickup truck, everything else being equal, is going to be a closer comparison uh, to a car than to an 18-wheeler. But remember, as we talked about before, John, the regulation does not say how close right. or how far your predicate needs to be. So if it is to my advantage to compare my car to my to a 18-wheeler – I will do that, but before I do, I will say, you might be wondering why I'm not comparing it to a pickup truck. Well, here's why, and then let me tell you now why the 18-wheeler is the appropriate comparison. Okay. uh, uh, you know, simply put, sometimes people, you know, they misunderstand why I'm using these very simple metaphors. Well, it goes back to Einstein. If you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well, well enough. Everybody knows what apples and oranges are. Everybody knows what cars and trucks are. If, right. we, cannot, if we cannot explain the regulatory logic based on these simple products, how can we possibly use this regulatory logic, which is the crux of the 510K, on much more complicated technologies that you and the and I and the rest of the audience are involved with? And the last example that I just wanted to point to, it's actually an example in, demonstrated in a video that's been floating around on the Internet for many years, John, that you did yourself. And that yeah. is your infamous uh, ketchup versus mustard <laughs> video and I'll be honest with you John I think that's an absolute brilliant video and as you know I use that in many of my medical device trainings so yeah. I encourage all of your audience if you have not seen John's video where he does a similar substantial equivalence comparison that I just did with apples and oranges and cars and trucks he does it with ketchup and mustard I would highly recommend watching that video.
1: All right, I'll, Mike. That's that's a blast from the past. I mean, I I I um I haven't seen that video myself in a while, but I I was uh, quite the young pup or younger anyway. <laughs> uh, well, but I wasn't gonna
0: mention that part. Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I, I was gonna say I have less hair uh, than I do now, but I w- was still bald. But let's just say the the facial hair is uh, a lot more gray than it was then. But folks, I'll I'll uh, I'll provide a link to that video. Um, well, when this, uh, with the, the text that accompanies this podcast, that, uh, that's a blast from the past. Thanks for reminding me of that. I, for, I had, had for a moment forgotten about that one, Mike. But, um, all I, right. So <laughs> I use uh, that video frequently in many of my medical device trainings. Ah, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. So let's, um, let's, I guess, jump into some final thoughts and key takeaways and maybe, uh, a lesson or two that can be learned. What do you think? how how can we help this how can we help our peers in this industry uh remove this substantial equivalence uh block that that um prevents so many 510 and k's from from getting through
0: so simply put, you know, we've gone through a lot in a short period of time, but if we were to recap, uh, remember a couple of things. Remember, substantial equivalence is important and why it's important, because so many of the submissions are rejected because of that. In order to show substantial equivalence, you have to address both labeling as well as technology. You do not have to decouple them. As a matter of fact, most people do not. However, I personally do decouple them. I treat them separately. I show substantial equivalence for labeling and substantial equivalence for technology separately. You don't have to do that, but that's my approach. Um, uh, You can do that via the labeling matrix and the technology matrix, as we talked about. But fundamentally, remember the apples and oranges in cars and trucks? We want to stress the similarities, and we want to de-emphasize or not draw attention to the differences. And last and most important, perhaps, is once you have developed your... Uh, identified your predicate, looked at the product code, justified the classification and everything else, please take this to the FDA in advance in the form of a pre-sub or whatever way that you want to choose to communicate with the FDA. Quite frankly, I don't really care, but if the first time that the FDA is seeing your um, regulatory strategy, including your substantial equivalence argument, if the first time that they're seeing it is in your actual 510k submission, that, in my opinion, is a huge mistake because you're taking a huge regulatory risk that that submission is going to get kicked back, not necessarily because you were wrong, but because you were not successful in convincing the uh, the FDA. This is very much like a prosecution and a defense. If the prosecution is unsuccessful in convincing the jury Does that mean that they're wrong? Does that mean that the person is not guilty? No, that's not what it means. It means that they were unsuccessful in in convincing the judge or the jury of their position. So take this to the FDA in advance. Make sure that everybody is on the same page, that everybody is pulling in the same direction, and that will greatly minimize, perhaps not completely eliminate, but greatly minimize the chances of problems further down the road. Those are just a few of the, the pieces of advice that I would... Your audience. There's obviously much, much more that we can talk about on this topic, and I look forward to doing that uh, at some time in the future.
1: All right. Well, Mike, I appreciate the insights on substantial equivalence. Folks, a big part of any sort of regulatory submission and, and product development effort is, is certainly rooted in good design control practices and risk management. And the number one software in the world to help you with those types of activities uh, is developed and, and produced right here at greenlight.guru. So be sure to go to www.greenlight.guru and learn more about not only our design control and risk management workflow, but all the other workflows that we've developed to help companies with their quality management system. Again, I want to thank Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences for being my guest today. And this is your host, the founder, VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Greenlight.Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.